Mac Jones is ripped. Matt Patricia is calling plays. The Celtics are title favorites. And The Ringer has a new Boston show. I'm Brian Barrett, host of Off the Pike, the show covering all things Boston sports. I'll have shows multiple times a week covering your favorite teams and with your favorite Ringer and local guests. Plus, maybe Bill will stop by to rant about the Sox. Follow Off the Pike with me, Brian Barrett, now on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all in one page. Plus, start betting on the Explorer page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit theringer.com backslash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com backslash RG. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida. We'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Hello, welcome to The Answer. I'm with Michael Pina today, and uh, I know you guys have gotten used to seeing us on Monday nights, but we are here back in our regularly scheduled programming to preview the conference finals. Uh, We'll start with the Lakers versus the Nuggets, uh, the natural conclusion that we all saw coming. Uh, So, And also what I think is kind of the natural endgame of of our pairing. I'm glad that we get to debate Lakers versus Nuggets. <laughs> Michael, how's it going? I'm doing great. You know, uh, we're a few hours, 36 hours, 48 hours. I don't know. It's been a, a total blur removed from the greatest game seven performance in NBA history by Jason Tatum. So I'm just on a cloud right now. It's It's been it's been great. Yeah, I imagine you'll be riding that high for pretty much the rest of your life. Uh, <laughs> I am going to need you to hold your horses a little bit, though. We will we will talk about the Celtics, and I'll give you some space to to talk about Tatum. But you know what? Like, let's let's start with your second favorite player, uh, Nikola Jokic. <laughs> <laughs> let's. Um, where do you want to start with this series? Because there's so many fun entrance points. Um, mm-hmm. To me, I think like the centers will decide this series. And it's a fa- fascinating duel where it's like the best offensive player by far in these playoffs, Nikola Jokic, the best defensive player by far in these playoffs. And they're going to be guarding each other, I think. Or maybe that's where we start. Do you think that they will spend a lot of time defending one another and going at one another in the post. Uh, Yeah, this matchup is generational in a way that makes me really, really giddy. Uh, Like you said, just like a clash of offense and defense, two of the best performers in the playoffs so far. Um, And I think they're both going to have to play even better than they've played in order to match up with each other. Like if you look at 
the guys that Jokic has taken down so far, Gobert, the the ghost of DeAndre Ayton. Uh, Davis is just going to present an entirely different challenge for him. He's got the size to contest his shots. He has a lateral quickness to keep up with him. He can, you know, he can post up with him too. There's not a lot of guys in the NBA that can defend Jokic on all of the multiple plays that he can create in one possession, right? Like you kind of, I always look at the Jokic hierarchy of shots like beyond obviously his his preference is to is to make plays for others i imagine the lakers will start one-on-one with davis and kind of force Jokic to put them in a position to send help and send double teams but kind of make him uncomfortable by making him a scorer but you look at kind of the i think Jokic kind of takes like we talk about three level scores in the nba a lot Jokic is kind of like a 10 level scorer like there's really no place on the court that i feel comfortable with him having the ball if I'm, if I'm the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yo, Davis is a rare guy where you're like, okay, Jokic is going to pop off of a Jamal Murray screen. Um, I think Davis can recover and get there for, for a three ball. Uh, if Jokic decides to drive after that, then, you know, he's got the lateral quickness. If he turns around, like he often does in those drives and turns it into a post up, then Davis can also handle that. Um, and that just speaks to, Davis's defensive versatility and just basically the job that he's done in these playoffs. It's kind of like, I mean, I don't think these like, we'll talk about this later. I think both these teams are pretty different from the the version of themselves that faced off during the bubble, but it is kind of like the resurrection of, of bubble Davis with probably more of a focus on defense than, uh, than in the bubble. And yeah, it's just, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult, but to your question. Yeah. I definitely think that you, if you're the Lakers, at least like you start off with Davis on Jokic. And then honestly, beyond that, I think to me, the question of the series kind of becomes what happens if that's not tenable either because Jokic just decides that it's not or, you know, foul trouble or even just times that Davis is on the bench. Yeah, I think foul trouble is a huge deal. And that's why I would assume and I I rewatched the last time these two teams played each other in December, the last time at least Davis and Jokic played one another. And both teams, both coaching staffs were sending help like hard every time the ball went into the post whether it be Davis with it, whether it be Jokic with it, they were trying to double, they were trying to get the ball out of their hands. And it it worked, I think, like, it really didn't work, actually, for either side, but it worked, like, it was particularly detrimental when the Lakers were on defense because Jokic is just this otherworldly passer and he hit Aaron Gordon for with a sick bounce pass for a dunk. He threw it out to KCP for a wide-open three, um, I don't know like how you necessarily defend this player. Like all the things that you laid out with AD, like really smart in terms of what he can take away from Jokic and how he can make Jokic's life difficult. But when he is single covering Jokic and Jokic wants to play bully ball, I don't think there's anyone, including AD, on the planet who can defend Nikola Jokic. Like he will draw fouls. He has like ridiculous touch around the basket. He's got these little flip shots, the turnarounds. AD for all of his length, for all of his his power, it just is a really difficult matchup for anyone. So I'm really interested to see like how much help the Lakers send um, Davis. And then also I wrote a feature about this uh, 
like a month ago, maybe. But one of the things that makes Jokic so difficult to defend is how he runs off screens and how he's constantly moving away from the ball. And that strategy was implemented in the bubble um, or maximized in the bubble in the first round when they were up against Rudy Gobert. And the whole reason why they did it was they wanted to get a paint protector away from the basket and make a paint protector really uncomfortable. And so for another series, this is what the Golden State Warriors tried to do to Anthony Davis um, and something the Memphis Grizzlies couldn't because they had no shooters. The Denver Nuggets are going to be able to get AD away from the basket, I think, fairly easily. And how does everyone else on the Lakers um, deal with that, I think, is going to be a huge inflection point in this series. And also, like, can AD hold up physically through running around fighting through wedge screens and pin downs and UCLA cuts and all the things that Jokic does that makes him so abnormal and such an intriguing cover. Like it's just going to, it's just a challenge that requires more than one player. I think it takes like a whole unit to stop him or slow him down even. No question. And, and I think, I think that sort of idea of, you know, making Davis uncomfortable by doing all those things to him. I imagine Michael Malone was thinking about that. Just watching Warriors Lakers pretty much the second that they beat the Suns. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it looks. Right. Cause the, the place that I think the Warriors went wrong with it is just their size and the amount of mistakes that they make. In general and also just like the sheer amount of mistakes that they made in that series in particular um i think Jokic in those situations ad is already naturally going to be away from the ball in a lot of situations um on Jokic, or sorry away from the rim in a lot of situations on Jokic. they can just naturally mm-hmm. do that in a way that's you know the, the warriors had to get into a lot of different sets in order to do that um and I think the Nuggets can basically force AD away from the rim just by having Joker away from the rim, having him kind of facilitate at the top of the key at the, you know, the top of the three point line. Whereas, you know, the Warriors had to get into a lot of screening action that then, you know, the Lakers ended up switching. So I think it's an easier proposition for them too. Right. And then you have just the fact that, you know, with all due respect to Steph and Draymond, Jokic is a much better passer than them. He's more accurate. He's less capricious. Um, I think he's just going to be able to execute against the Lakers defense in a way that the Warriors couldn't. And also they've just got the guys, right? Like it's like, (laughs) I don't know. There's just, there's just no real good option uh, against the, against the Nuggets offense. But I think then also you got to start thinking about like, different ways that the Lakers uh, can answer that. I was actually, I was reading Zach Lowe's preview of the series uh, last night and and an interesting thing that he said was like, what if the Lakers put Vanderbilt on Murray and they just decide to switch a lot of those actions? I'd be curious kind of what happens then. That is fascinating. And I think that first of all, like if you switch Vando onto Jokic, he'll just back you down into the post, draw foul, score, draw the two, find the open man, get a great shot. Like that's what they'll, that's what the counter is there. Um, I think Vando, another question, the number two question I have really is like, is he going to start or are they going to roll with the same starting five that they closed out the Warriors with the Dennis Schroeder um, running point? And then you have Reeves, Russell, Schroeder in your starting five which is, I think, a little debilitating and takes away from your identity, um, your strength, which is your size, your length, your defense. You have the best defense in the NBA right now. 
and the best defense in these playoffs. So um, will Vando even like play huge minutes? Can they score enough points when he's on the court? I think scoring is like, I just don't think that there's like a way to stifle Denver's um, offense to the point where you can win four games. I think you really have to be able to put the ball in the basket efficiently. If you're the Lakers, that's, uh, running as much as possible whenever you force a turnover, which, as you said, a great point, like the Denver Nuggets don't really turn the ball over that much. So that's going to be really difficult. Just anytime you can run off a make, run off a miss, they're going to have to do that because being in the half court is really tough. And Vando, no one guards him. And that just lets, you know, Michael Porter Jr. hang out somewhere or Jamal Murray hang out somewhere and makes life easier on the defense, on Denver's defense. And I think like, one of the other big parts of this is the other side of the court where like, who is Jokic guarding? I know he's going to be guarding Anthony Davis, but like how well can he do it and how will the Mm -hmm. Lakers punish him? Because the Suns weren't really able to punish Jokic. The Timberwolves weren't really able to punish Jokic and the Lakers don't have as good of an offense as either of those teams. So I think that that's going to be just an absolutely fascinating part of this chess match. Like how can you, compromise Jokic's shortcomings to give yourself an advantage. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where the question of who you start actually becomes really, really interesting too. Um, I think if you start Schroeder, uh, then you've basically got three guards that can run the pick and roll with, uh, with LeBron and Davis. LeBron is obviously, he's setting a historic amount of ball screens at this point. Uh, in his, in can, his I, career, can I pause you for, for two players. seconds? I, I yeah. just want to say like, it's so funny that, We've gone how long in this podcast? And this is the first time we started talking about LeBron James. Isn't that wild? That's a really good point. That's a really good point. What do you think that says? I mean, I've written this and said this before on this podcast. And if you look at my mentions on Twitter, they'll all let you know that how I feel about (laughs) LeBron in this postseason, which is like, uh, I think you have to look at him as not as like a 38 year old doing amazing things for a 38 year old, but as a pretty good player who um, versus the competition just can't do what he used to do. And Mm -hmm. like, he needs to be awesome in this series offensively. Like I just talked about it. Like when a LeBron AD pick and roll happens and LeBron's able to just charge at a dropping Jokic, the Lakers are at a huge advantage. I just don't think he can do that in a seven game series. Like in game six against the Warriors, he was amazing from the jump, like attacking Andrew Wiggins in the post, being super physical, looking vintage. Like people frame it as pacing and like holding things in reserve. And it's like, he just can't, in my opinion, he just can't do that five, six times in a series. So it's just a, I don't think like this is intentional necessarily or like by design. I just don't think he's capable of it. And I think he'll need to, if he was holding things in reserve offensively, like it all needs to come out in this series because yeah. they can't win unless he is awesome on offense, I think. I think that's the second point that this series hinges on. And I think it'll kind of answer the question of how much he was actually holding in the tank. I kind of tend to think that it's part 
he has something that he's holding in the tank. Obviously, LeBron's very smart. I think he's he's always been a really good self-assessor. He knows what he has. He knows what he doesn't have. That's kind of what's mm-hmm. allowed him to to adjust to to the game for the last 20 years or so. Um, he's basically played like all of his minutes at, at center and power forward uh, throughout the playoffs. Um, I think that tells you a lot about kind of where he's at and where he's effective at this point. Um, he's also just driving to the rim a lot less. Like I was looking mm-hmm. at it yesterday. He's driving to the rim seven times uh, a game during the playoffs. That's down from nine during the regular season or nine. Like I think it was closer to 10. Like, you know, it was in the decimals. I don't pay attention, attention to decimals. Math was never decimals. really my strong suit. Exactly. I don't like decimals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Screw <laughs> Fuck them. Um, but that's, that's also like post, post Russell Westbrook trade, like post Russell Westbrook, like just being gone and no longer driving to the rim for 15 times a game and clogging up the lane. So, I mean, that's also, we all know that I don't have to give you numbers for that. We can all kind of see it. If you've watched LeBron, he looks, he obviously looks different. If he can summon some of the bursts that he has usually that we were kind of used to seeing from the perimeter and attack a guy like Jokic. I think that's huge. Uh, but I also think that there's ways that he can attack the nuggets that we've kind of seen throughout these playoffs, right? Like I think putting him on a screen where Jokic has to defend on the drop, I think is really good too. I think like an Austin Reeves, LeBron James pick and roll is basically a nightmare for Jokic just because of Reeves playmaking, the way that he can kind of get down to exactly the level that you'll give him. Um, you know, he'll, if you're, if you're just going to seed the mid range, like, yeah, sure. He'll take that. Um, he is obviously really good at drawing fouls. Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on the nuggets to, to help there. So, and it also like, I'm one thing I've really enjoyed is watching LeBron attack off the short roll. Um, he's obviously taken a lot of lessons from, you know, I think the best player in the series, uh, that we haven't talked about yet, it, Bruce Brown, just in terms of how to get into space and uh, and and put pressure on on the paint and then kick out. LeBron is obviously, you know, he's a generational playmaker, and I think it's kind of interesting to watch him at this juncture in his career where like everyone kind of talked about he would turn into Carl Malone. But the thing is, Carl like LeBron is much more graceful. Like he doesn't have like that brutish automatonic but bucket getting thing that Carl <laughs> Malone had. He's just more, you know, he's just a player who's always been sort of designed to take advantage of all the multivariate options that a basketball game creates. So putting him in the middle in those situations, having him run to the rim, I think that's just like, that's as destructive. Like it's just, it's not, it doesn't give you as many options, but, um, and he's obviously doing a good job tacking off cuts. Um, if his three ball is on, that's great. That's also another thing that I think the series kind of hinges on too. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that there's ways that he can attack Jokic. Do you want to say any more about LeBron or do you want to move on to other ways that can, the, the Lakers can kind of attack? Well, I think the big minutes in this series will be when AD and Jokic are both on the bench. And I think through those, in those like pockets, LeBron will probably be on the court and that's where he really needs to attack the basket. And I think Aaron Gordon will probably be his defender, primary defender still, because I assume that the Nuggets will stick with their, you know, small Gordon at the, at the five units that start the second and fourth quarters. And in those like little sections, like LeBron needs to be the best player easily. And Mm -hmm. Um, He needs to hunt Jamal Murray and pick and roll. Can he 
do that still? Can he like bully? Uh, will the Nuggets switch that? Will the Nuggets be able to get out of that and just kind of delay the possession and force tough shots late in the shot clock? Like all these little things are really, really going to be fascinating. And your point was really spot on about his three point shooting. It's a huge variable again, hasn't been great in the playoffs, but he seems to like Shaq at the free throw line, make them when they matter. And I think the pull-up twos, when they duck under uh, ball screens, like he'll have to knock those down. He's done that for the past like 10 years, but can he still? It's just going to be, those are that's like just a little, little like battle within the war, I think, that is really fascinating to, and worth keeping an eye on. I actually think that obviously it's important how LeBron does in all facets, but I think it's actually more important how he is uh, when he's with the starters, because obviously I think Aaron Gordon has to get the start on, on Davis. I don't, you mm-hmm. know, you just don't put him on Jokic for so many, so many different reasons. Oh, interesting. You disagree. You think that Gordon will start on Davis? Yeah, I think so. You think it's going to be Jokic? I think you try to hide Jokic, especially if like, I guess it depends if, if, uh, if the Lakers start Vanderbilt, then I think you just try to hide him on there, have MPJ on one of the perimeter players or LeBron. Um, but that's, that's where I think to me it gets interesting. So if you look at the bubble, right? Like one of the things that was really difficult for Denver was being able to handle both Davis and LeBron. I think there were nights that they could handle one, but then the other one would go off. Obviously this is a different team. Um, Aaron Gordon, I think is a much better defender than Paul Millsap or Tory Craig or Jeremy Grant in these scenarios. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the thing is they're really thin behind him on, on the interior. So if both LeBron and Davis are, figuring out ways to attack when they're together on the floor. I think that just puts a little bit more stress onto the Nuggets rotation and kind of forces them to answer some questions that I'm not sure that they actually have the answers to. Like, and I think it's, it's actually doubly important because they have the perimeter defense. Like this Lakers team is very different because they have so many perimeter attackers. Uh, and, but they haven't really faced a defense that has, you know, multiple really good perimeter defenders in Bruce Brown and Jamal Murray and Mm -hmm. and Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Christian Brown, who, while he did a great job against Kevin Durant, I think LeBron is just a very different type of matchup. And a lot of those guys, as good of defenders as they are, they can just be attacked by strength. Um, And then I just think if that happens, I just start to question, like, what do you do if you're the Nuggets? Yeah. I, first of all, did not mean to frazzle you with my question about Gordon guarding Davis. I think that if Schroeder is the point guard, then Jokic has no choice. Like, he has to guard Anthony Mm -hmm. Davis. Because then who guards LeBron on this team? Like, are you putting KCP on LeBron? That feels like... Ultimate sign of disrespect. And I don't know. I think, like, for all the reasons that I doubt LeBron right now because of his age, because of his his foot injury, like, I feel like he would be an overwhelming presence for KCP. But I, I don't know. There's the matchups are really um, fascinating in this series. Mm-hmm. And I think that they'll shift as it goes on. I guess I kind of on that, on that note, it seems like the Nuggets and the Lakers are both really vulnerable to each other in different ways. Like they both present problems that I would be terrified of as the opposing team. And I wonder when fatigue becomes a factor. This is another every other day series. 
and the Nuggets have cut down their rotation. Actually, you wrote you wrote a great article about this. The Nuggets have basically cut down their rotation and turned their bench into an actual strength. But they've had to do that by basically playing eight guys. Mm-hmm. And Jamal Murray is questionable for game one. Um, he has an illness, and we don't know if he'll play yet. Uh, but he gonna play. <laughs> he'll probably play. He'll probably play. But the thing is, when I started thinking about that, it really started making me worried about the Nuggets rotation. Like, I don't really know how well they hold up in a seven game series. Um, and then on the Lakers end, obviously like they're old and they have to go play in high altitude Denver. And I think like both of these teams are like, it's, it's weird because I, I'm trying to think about who's going to win this series. I don't have a good read on it in any sense, because I think that if certain matchup things are a disaster for either side, it could be like a quick series, but they're both kind of evenly matched to each other. And it could also be a long series, which is like, oh my God, great analysis, right? Uh, (laughs) I just, that's just really how I feel about it. Like it could be Lakers in five. It could be Lakers in seven. It could be Denver in five. It could be Denver in seven. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, so much of this is just going to straight up come down to like, which of these like generational talents put the most stress on the other team. Anything could happen. The Warriors could sweep the Lakers, you know, just it's it's a crazy <laughs> world we live in. Um, no, I think that uh, like what makes analyzing the Lakers in particular really challenging, to be honest, is like their roster is full of surprises. Like there's a Lonnie Walker game where he just swings a series, wins a critical mm-hmm. game, goes bananas in the fourth quarter. I think we potted right after that game ended and we're like stunned. Um, there's a Rui Hachimura game. Just this dude who, I mean, watching him in Washington for his entire career, I had no faith in him doing anything in a playoff series, let alone hitting like eight threes in a game. Just didn't see it coming. Um, I do not think highly of D'Angelo Russell as an all-around basketball player, but... He's a first-quarter flamethrower, man. He's gotten hot at, like, timely moments in games. Uh, Just uh, spots where the Lakers' offense is in desperate need of any type of punch or momentum turn, and he'll hit, like two or three threes in 90 seconds. And all of a sudden just the whole game is on tilt. Like, and that's credit to him. Um, But I didn't anticipate Dennis Schroeder playing this well, frankly. And he's like a real contributor now who might start and was arguably their third best player in that series against the Warriors. So I'm just expecting like Troy Brown Jr. to shoot 45% from behind the arc in this series or (laughs) Jared Vanderbilt to knock down all the corner threes when he's left wide open or I don't know. Like, I mean, I I think Austin Reeves is like a very good player now, just straight up. And Mm -hmm. another conversation for another day is like, what his contract's going to look like next? Because I'm fascinated to see that. Uh, It could be like a Jalen Brunson 2.0 situation. But... Yeah, it's just, it makes it, um, I feel like this is a cop-out, I, I apologize, but analyzing this team is, they're very unpredictable in a lot of ways that have benefited them throughout this entire run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they get different stuff from different role players like every single night. And I've also never seen the LeBron James team be so reliant on role players either. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, it's its fascinating. They're really difficult to read. Uh, I think one more sort of point before we move on is just, we didn't really talk about Russell 
And you want to, so like we talked about defensive liabilities, and I just think that Jamal Murray is going to take every opportunity he can to like have a guard versus mm-hmm. guard screen and, and try to get get himself on D'Lo. I imagine if Schroeder starts, he'll get the matchup on him. Uh, but I also, I mean, I kind of wonder how Reeves would do. I think Reeves is just an evolving property. I think he showed some stuff against against Curry. He's got the size. He's got the length. He's like reasonably smart. I would like to see him on Murray and I'm sure we will. And I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. That's like one I want to put a pin in and see what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. I think Reeves has certainly acquitted himself on the defensive end. His ability to be a cog in the best def, like play big minutes as a cog in the best defense in the NBA, I think props to him and he's got size and strength and he fights and, uh, is disciplined and when you draw fouls at the rate that he does, it just allows like offense and defense are always related. So when you draw these fouls and you get to the free throw line, it just lets the Lakers set up in the half court. And that is like super beneficial for them because transition defense, not their strong suit. Um, and half court defense is like their bread and butter. So yeah, it's just a really fascinating team. And I think Darvin Ham has done an amazing job. He has a lot of options. Uh, and we didn't really get into who guards Jamal Murray that much, besides the points that you just made. But, like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Vando started on him, if Reeves started on him, if Shooter started on him. And then they would just kind of, like, make it work. And I think defending the Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic pick and roll, how they do that is is key to this series because it has been the most unstoppable action in the NBA thus far over the past month. And, you know, Davis is obviously going to have a big role in that. And how high is he going to be in drop? And can he take away the pocket pass? Can he contest the little floater range shots that Jokic has or take away the pull-ups, Jamal Murray's pull-ups? Like, I just think the way those two operate is their synergy is like so on point at all times and disrupting it is really difficult. But if any defense right now can, I I think uh, it's the Lakers. Yeah, Rob actually wrote a great article about the the Jamal and uh, and Jokic pairing. He did. Shout out to Rob. Shout out Rob. Um, Let's take a break. Then uh, we'll we'll hit uh, Heat versus Celtics. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now new customers can get a no sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. The Celtics are taking on the Heat in game one on Wednesday. And in my opinion, this is the game that the Heat just absolutely have to steal. And I think that they have a good chance of stealing it. The Celtics are favored by eight, which also just feels like a lot. So I might just put some money on the Heat taking that one. There's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sports book. Visit FanDuel.com slash RingerNBA and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash RingerNBA. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hope is here. Gambling helpline MA.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 sport in Massachusetts. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. 21 plus in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas 
Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. In Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Okay, so now let's hit the Eastern Conference Finals where the Boston Celtics are going to face off against the Miami Heat, a rematch of last year's Eastern Conference Finals, a a classic uh, seven-game battle. A lot of the familiar faces, a lot of familiar faces are back. Um, Pretty much everyone except P.J. Tucker, who's currently on vacation. Shout out to P.J. Tucker. Um, Sarah, what are you thinking about this series? Is it, I mean, the Celtics are... I would assume heavily favored. I don't, I'm not a betting man. I haven't looked at the lines, but they're more talented. They're deeper. Uh, two guys who just made all NBA and they're the number two seed. Does that matter to you? Like, uh, should they be heavily favored? Or did you kind of throw all that out the window because Spo, Jimmy, Bam, the history, just what are you thinking? That's actually a great place to start. That's kind of what I was, that's what I've been thinking about pretty much this whole time. Like the, the Celtics have, everything. They have home court advantage. They have more talent. They have all kinds of depth. They can play in a whole bunch of different ways. And then, you know, they can, they can play in those ways with multiple different personnel too. Mm -hmm. If a certain guy isn't, isn't going, the heat are much thinner. Um, they are obviously, I think they're, you know, on paper, the less talented team. They have Jimmy Butler. (laughs) (laughs) They have Jimmy Butler. So, and like, that is that for, for most of the playoffs has just been kind of the only factor that has mattered in these games. Um, I think he's the best player in this series. If, you know, if you just go based on playoff performance, um, do you have, do you have anything to say about that? Would you disagree? Um, you know, I'm not no no disrespect, no shots at Jimmy. He's amazing. I feel like his existence gives his team a puncher's chance in any seven game series, and you can't say that about a handful of guys in the league, five six guys in the whole league right now. Um, I do think Tatum is a little better of a basketball player, and one of the X factors that I think we should keep an eye on is like Jimmy's ankle. Um, mm-hmm. Sprained his ankle in game one of the second round against the Knicks. Missed game two. Hasn't looked, I mean, if you look at the numbers, like they're okay. Played huge minutes going forward in the series, but like hasn't been super efficient. um, Hasn't been able to get to the step back. Hasn't really been effective finishing at the basket on drives. Still gets to the line because he's super crafty, able to to bite guys with his shot fakes um, and his crafty footwork and all that. But I just think like, his health, I think, is a is one subplot going into mm-hmm. this series that I'll be keeping an eye on. And forget about like who's the best player in the series or whatever. Like the Celtics are the best team um and the most equipped roster to throw guys at Jimmy to mm-hmm. get him off what he wants to do. You have Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. 
Um, Al Horford and switches or drop is really a difficult coverage. Um, Grant Williams, who might get dusted off, and we can talk about him in a minute. And it's like the best option, the guy who Jimmy will hunt and has hunted in the past is Derek White, who's the only Celtic who made an all-defensive team, which just like speaks to their their riches and their personnel. So I, I think that that right there is just really fascinating. Um, can Jimmy do what he did against the Milwaukee Bucks this late on not one foot or anything like that, but not in, I would say, like the physical condition he was in in the first round. That's the thing with Jimmy, because like my instinct is just to say <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, um, it all I think this is obviously going to be the biggest challenge he's had thus far uh, with all respect to the Bucks. But at the same time, I was thinking about it. I think this is easily the biggest challenge that the Celtics have had so far in the playoffs. It just feels to me like Miami is a, is a little bit more battle tested. And because they're the less talented team, I think it's actually really important that they steal game one. Um, the Celtics are coming off a series against the Sixers that went seven games. Uh, they just played on Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a really quick turnaround and it's a really, it's a really stark stylistic difference playing the Miami Heat versus the Sixers. You know, I just don't like Tatum's yes, not going to get possessions on, on, you know, someone with the size of Tyrese Maxey or, or D'Anthony Melton very often. Oh, that's kind of, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what starting lineup the heat go with. Um, if they do want to go a little bit more defensive and, and switch everything, then I think, you know, you got to have love coming off the bench. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably what I would go with, but it's nice that they can kind of play two different styles. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think Miami is going to have to win some of, you know, the hustle battles. They're going to have to win the possession battles somehow. I think the thing that concerns me the most about their ability to win this series is just the Celtics just aren't the same volatile high turnover team that they were last year. Like if you, if you kind of, I was looking back at the series last year and I just kind of remembered like, Oh yeah, this was a series of runs in the most dramatic and ugly way possible. It was just like one team, either the Miami, he would either go on these scoring droughts, which they're still very capable of going on scoring droughts. And Boston would just stop executing and start coughing up the ball. They just Mm -hmm. don't do that as much anymore. Um, So I think Miami, if they want to win this, they're just going to have to find ways to generate offense in more consistent half court settings. And that I think means a lot from Kyle Lowry. I think it means a lot from Kevin Love. I think it means, I mean, the other guy, this, I think the guy, this series really hinges on his Batman to bio. The Kevin Love question is really fascinating because there's seven and one or eight and one or something like that with him in the starting lineup in the playoffs and his shot has kind of deserted him or it did in the second round and the whole, basically the whole heat team couldn't buy a three in that series. But I think if you start Kevin Love and we know that um, Rob Williams is going to start and the Celtics are going to keep that starting five rolling after the success it saw in game six and game seven against the Sixers. But if you keep Kevin Love in the starting five, I don't know who guards Jason Tatum on Miami's roster in that in that unit like bam would be on either horford or rob uh you have jimmy who loves to guard jalen and that's pretty much who he always sticks to you can't really put max Struess. i would imagine max Struess hides out on the other big don't want to put him on tatum to to start because that really simplifies what boston's going to do to you offensively so i think if you do start love then you're that means you're like starting in a zone and who knows Mm -hmm. like 
maybe Miami spends this whole series in a zone and they play Duncan Robinson and they play love because they need that offense. But then again, like Caleb Martin has been one of their best three-point shooters. And Mm -hmm. I think back to last year in the conference finals, I was sitting in Miami's arena and I just remember Grant Williams was guarding Caleb Martin and he would just stand in the paint and clap his hands and not even run out to contest threes. And Caleb Martin missed basically all of them. Like Martin's a better shooter now, but that I think is something that the Celtics will live with. They'll live with putting Rob on Caleb Martin. Um, they'll live with Rob putting live with Rob on Kevin Love and just letting him roam and and deter stuff elsewhere. But I think like the three point line is super important in this series, like as it is in every series in the NBA playoffs. But particularly now, where the Heat know how to kind of muck up a game. They go zone and they just shoot 53s. And I think we could mm-hmm. see that. Um, they did it in game two when Jimmy was not uh, available against the Knicks and they nearly won that game. You know, smoke and mirrors is kind of a disrespectful term. I don't think necessarily that's what this is, but they'll have to do like everything. Like you'll see one, three, one, you'll see two, three, you'll see full court press, drop back into uh, switch everything strategy. Like it, we're, I think we're going to see it all from the heat and you're really smart to point out. Like they have to win every 50, 50 ball. They have to force turnovers, which is going to be dip more difficult than it would be if you had someone like Victor Oladipo to throw at Jalen and just, I mean, he was a nightmare for Jalen Brown in last year's conference finals. He's not available. So mm-hmm. I think in terms of like shot creation, like can Miami score enough points? That's a big deal. Tyler Hero is probably not going to play in this series. Where do you get it from? Um, and can you afford, can you live with lineups that have Duncan Robinson and Kevin Love in them that are offense heavy, that don't die on the defensive end? I think that's like the series in a nutshell for me. I have a question for you, just kind of based on, I, you know, you're, you probably watch uh, the Celtics more closely than, than anyone I know other than the man who writes our checks. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was wondering if you think uh, the Celtics have just had this inconsistency that hasn't really kind of, it just, you would think that maybe the playoffs come around and they would lock in and in the right moments, they have. They've done what they needed to. Um, there are some moments against Philadelphia that just straight up scared me in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, why don't these guys give a shit? Um, I am curious how much you think that can be solved by just a tactical move of Robert Williams being in the starting lineup again uh, versus how much that is actually just an issue of just, I, I don't know exactly what it is. Cause this is a team that is obviously they're kind of, you know, they're, they're looking for revenge in a way. I think, I mean, obviously I think Miami also has, has plenty of, you know, it's the revenge series. Pain. It is, it is. <laughs> I mean, these teams have played, played against each other and like, this is going to be three times in the last four years. Um, and they've both had really tough finals beats. Uh, they've just, you know, it's, it's, that's what's really going to be fun about this series too, is I think both of these teams have really been through it. They know how to win. Um, they're going to be really competitive. They're very competent. Um, they can just, they're just really smart. And they also just have guys that really give a shit. I think it's going to kind of be like, and they know each other so well too. I think it's going to be one of those series that could be a slugfest, basically like, from from game one and we're going to get these awesome quotes from Spo about you know this is just like a bloody warrior <laughs> I don't know I can't talk like Spo um, but 
Yeah. I, so anyway, so my, my, my question essentially is like, I am not worried about Miami basically in the, in the playoffs, at least being able to outgrit the Celtics, but I do kind of worry about that on the Celtics end. And do you think that the tactical adjustment is enough or is there something that, you know, maybe spiritually is going on? We've been texting about this the last few days. Um, you know, I sent you Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum hugging on the court after game six and mm-hmm. just the vibes are so great. It's just lovey-dovey. Everything's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, all is copacetic. Nothing to be concerned about, you know? It's kumbaya in Boston right now. Uh, you're looking at me like I'm lying and trying to sell you snake oil. I can <laughs> right hear now. your voice breaking a little bit as you say those things. I'll also note that that handshake and hug <laughs> between Tatum and, <laughs> and, and Jalen kind of looked like they were doing it for the first time in a long time. Like they weren't really in rhythm. Like you see, you know, the way that LeBron shakes, like not to, you know, LeBron's got his issues with his teammates, but the way that LeBron is just like lockstep on every handshake, it was basically the opposite of that. Now they've, they haven't had a lot of time. To, to turn things around uh, series-wise. Mm-hmm. They, they're going to have to play right away, so I don't know how much time they've had to practice their their handshake chemistry. Uh, but, you know, I, I hope I hope to see a little bit better in game one. We'll see. I, I don't know. It was organic. That's the thing. It was organic. Mm. It was uh, love. Just It just mm-hmm. flowed from both of them at the same time in that moment. And you just have to... It just, it just, just melt your heart. Honestly, that's what it did for me, at least. Um, okay, so the foibles are kind of part of the humanity there. They're just exactly. like, that's, yeah, okay. You know that. Um, I will say, uh, going back to Rob being in the starting five, just from a, like how it makes everybody feel standpoint, it's clear to me by all the quotes, everyone on that team is like, yes, maybe except Derek White. Everyone on that team is like, yes, this is what we wanted. This Everyone is more comfortable. Like Al Horford could not be more thrilled not being just the five anymore and like having a big next to him. He seems way cooler off with that. Um, Marcus Smart said he was ecstatic. Uh, Jalen Brown said it was like the adjustment that the team needed. Uh, Jason Tatum loves Rob Williams. And the Jason Tatum, Rob Williams pick and roll was like totally unstoppable in the last two games of that series against Philly. So I think just like, I don't even know. It's like when you're on a basketball court, just like then there's a guy on the court who makes your life easier on both ends and just does all these little things. You just have a better pep in your step, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Like I, I no disrespect to Derek White, who's like the third best player, or fourth best player on the team for the entire season and has been awesome. But he's not Rob Williams. Like coming into this season, Rob Williams was the third best player, the third most important player, like by far. He was the only guy on the team who had a positive, and it was a wide positive plus minus in last year's finals. He's integral to everything that they do and was integral to their identity before he came off the bench and kind of everything got funky. So like tactically, maybe this isn't the smartest quote unquote move. And maybe Kevin Love or Caleb Martin they go berserk from behind the three-point line and Joe Mazzula regrets making that sure, sticking with that change for game one. But I think like in a way that is really hard to put into words, it just gives the Celtics this aura that they otherwise don't have. I think I think I agree with that. I also, I mean, I, I just, I look at Time Lord, I look at Caleb Martin and I'm like, 
Yeah, I can I can live with him running out to contest those shots or, you know, Martin having to attack a closeout. He's a great closeout attacker, but it's just the guy is built different. He's just he's built for those scenarios, which is what makes him such a perfect defender in the modern NBA. Mm-hmm. He's one of those few guys that could really be in two places at once and and defend in like pretty much every scenario there is and be a lob threat at the same time. Um, and he's also going to be huge against Bam. That's the other thing, right? Like, I think Bam at this juncture, it's just a different, it's a different Bam, you would hope, than the one that we got last year that just wasn't quite as aggressive on offense. I think he is, he has solved Grant Williams in ways that he, he didn't quite do last year. I know, (laughs) I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, and I think Horford just a step slower. So, I mean, and then, and like Rob Williams has always had Bam's number. I'm just really curious to see what happens with that matchup. I think a lot of it is just going to be straight up on Bam's aggression, but yeah, it's just, it's a tough matchup for him and it just makes, it makes life a lot more difficult for, for Miami. I think if I'm Miami, I'd obviously have Derek White rather start. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you about on that note, uh, Marcus Smart, when he was talking about the adjustment also said, you know, Joe was obviously getting killed for it in the press, rightfully so, but he's learning. And that kind of struck me as interesting. It kind of reminded me of the Raptors run in 2019 where Nick Nurse wasn't quite ready to be like a finals level, like the tactician we saw in the finals. That was like, there was a kind of a slow build to that. He was learning how to make playoff adjustments throughout the series, uh, throughout the different series that he was coaching. Um, do you think that this could be a similar scenario with Missoula where he sort of is starting to figure some things out. Like, can he get, he's not going to be on Spo's level. That's just not really a fair thing to ask from like Spo just being like a magician, tactician, in-game adjuster, and also just like an incredible spiritual leader. Um, he, the, he are going to have the coaching advantage. That is just what it is. But do you think Joe can, do you think he has room for for improvement? Like, what's his what's his ceiling in this series? Yeah, it's what's really fascinating to me, and I'm writing about this for a series preview tomorrow for the Ringer.com. Go check it out. Is one coach has maybe no options? Maybe like he has the players that he has in Spo that he can play, and he's going to play them, and he's going to have them do different things, and he's going to convince them that the world is out to get them and nobody believes in them, and to leave it all on the floor and this and that. And then Missoula has, like, a lot of options. Like, we talked about Grant Williams. We've talked about, or we haven't talked about, like, Sam Hauser, who fell out of the rotation but started the Sixers series in the rotation and was firmly in their rotation in the first round against Atlanta. And, like, Joe Missoula loves anyone who can shoot threes. That's, like, a foundational tenet of... Boston's identity throughout the regular season was like, we're going to be high volume three point shooting team that can space the floor, attack driving lanes and fill gaps and just like pummel you on offense. And then the defense will just sort of take care of itself. Um, Will Hauser play in this series? Um, Who closes between white, smart Brogdon? Like, how many minutes will Rob play? Will he pull Rob if that doesn't work? Will he go back to Derek White in the starting? So like, there's a lot of different things that Missoula, I feel like it's like a gift and a curse. There's no like better way to put it where like Spo just knows who he can play and he's going to deal with those guys and kind of strategize with what he has because like Tyler, he doesn't have to worry about benching Tyler Hero or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He's not available. 
and Missoula has to press the right buttons, frankly. Like maybe he won't, and maybe this will be like a total blowout series, and the Celtics are just like way more talented, and none of it will matter. But I'm more in line to think that he needs to be like on point with how he wants to defend the Jimmy Bam empty corner pick and roll. Are we going to switch that? Are we going to ice it down? Are we going to like what? I just I think all of that is going to matter in a lot of like in a magnified way. I think the series will be pretty competitive. Um, for spurts and who he plays and when will be huge. So I, I think he's a really good coach. I do. And I think in game six and game seven, after he made the adjustment to start Rob, I think how they defended the James Harden, Joel Embiid pick and roll was like amazing. And Harden did a lot of things that were terrible that made Missoula look really smart, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> I think Mazzola is really good and having him at, see, watching the adjustments he makes throughout the series and who he plays and how his rotation is altered will be just absolutely fascinating. And he has a greater margin for error, but he also can make more mistakes if any of that makes sense. <laughs> no, I think that's, that, uh, that's kind of what I was, that's the insight I was looking for. Um, before we get out of here, I'm going to just go gut feel Lakers and Celtics both in seven. Uh, what do you got? I have Nuggets in six and uh, Celtics in six. Although okay. my brain is like, dude, Celtics in five. What are you talking about? But I just <laughs> Jimmy, I feel like Jimmy will have like two performances that are absolutely out of this world. And Bam is good for at least one where it's like, okay, that elbow jumper, will it ever not go in? So I, I'm going Celtics in six and Nuggets in six. Okay, yeah, I feel you. I think the Celtics will have at least one game where they just straight up don't show up. All right. Entirely possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sonic. Fuel up for game day and any day, really, at Sonic. For a limited time, you can get the new $1.99 Sonic Crispy Tinder Wraps. And trust me, you don't want to miss out. A crispy chicken tender and bold flavors like hickory barbecue and cheesy Baja, crisp lettuce and melty cheese that make the perfect bite. So go get yourself some TLC, some tender love and chicken, and buy a $1.99 Sonic Crispy Chicken Tinder Wrap today. Tax not included. Limited time only at participated Sonic drive-ins. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber 
not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Before we get out of here, actually, uh, pretty much right before we started recording, got news that Doc Rivers is no longer the coach in Philadelphia. Uh, This news coming off of, you know, just one of the most depressing Game 7 losses for a team that has had a few depressing losses. I just saw you fist pump there. Um, Not surprising. Doc has been on the hot seat all all season uh, long. Any, Any initial takeaways for you? I think I'm a little surprised just because there's not a lot of options here for the Sixers with where they go. I don't think Doc Rivers coached poorly in this series. I think he actually was... I mean, everyone deserves blame for crunch time in game six. I think that is where the series was really lost if you're a Sixers fan. But... Like strategically, I didn't. I don't. I don't see anything that Doc did that was like terrible. I thought throughout the regular season, where he put Embiid to maximize him, make him the MVP, was really smart. How suddenly he was operating more from the nail, where you couldn't double him. Um, really unleashing the Harden Embiid pick and roll with space. Just I. I you know, I thought that that was. Like smart stuff, smart adjustments, a smart game plan. Uh, I think that when you play for Doc Rivers for a long time, players who do tend to really get, you know, he's not their favorite person in the world after a while. And I think James Harden's uh, comment after game seven to the press about his relationship with Doc could could speak to that. But I don't know. I, I am and I'm not like this is kind of the move that teams make when they don't have anything else to do really. And I don't know what the Sixers can do personnel wise to get them over the hump because there's a good chance Harden leaves or there is a chance Harden leaves. You don't have cap space to replace him. Uh, who's going to take Tobias Harris's contract from you? Are you going to trade Tyrese Maxey or just hope Tyrese Maxey makes a huge leap personnel wise? It's like, it's really difficult to do stuff. So I guess what they're thinking right now is, there's a lot of really talented coaches out there. Budenholzer was fired. Monty Williams was just fired. Nick Nurse was fired. These are all awesome coaches. Two of them have won NBA championships. So maybe Daryl Morey thinks that that is the missing factor here. And he can, whoever they hire next is going to be able to take Embiid up to an even greater level. But like if Embiid injures his knee, it doesn't matter who the coach is. So I don't know, like weird. I don't even know if I'm answering this question, but I I guess like fundamentally, I didn't anticipate them letting doc go as quickly as they did. Yeah. It's strange because the knock against doc has always been his playoff adjustments and just in-game tactical stuff. And this was one series in which, you know, I think I look back at game one and I think that the adjustments that he made, throughout that game were really impressive, but also in a way that I'm not necessarily used to seeing from Doc. So you understand why those criticisms exist. Um, I think on a locker room level, Doc is kind of the type of coach that is best when he's coaching 
a whole bunch of dudes who aren't stars. Like I kind of look back at those overachieving Clippers teams. Like he can be a really good motivator, um, but he gets a little lost in hierarchies. You know, I think there's obviously every team has hierarchies. They need structure, of course. But when I kind of think about the Sixers offense with the amount of talent that they have on this team, the way that it just never really gelled is just going to be something that I always kind of look back at. Um, I think just the, the inability to, to unlock more of Tobias Harris's game, to find a way to get him more consistent touches throughout the course of a season is something I'm going to look back at. I think just not, I don't think he pushed Joel hard enough to improve. I think like I, I was in, I was in Philly, the game that Philly beat Boston late April and Joel had, I think it was 52 points. Nobody else showed up. And then the Sixers almost coughed the game up twice on just really bad errors executing, you know, just closing out like there was like a bad inbounds play. I don't really exactly remember everything now, but what I do remember is going to that press conference and Doc is not worried about that, like at all. This team at that moment had the vibe of just waiting for the playoffs. I think if I was a coach and, you know, it was early April and my team wanted to make a run at the championship and they made that many tactical just like errors and despite how many vets they have on their team I'd be like kind of freaking out a little bit Uh, but he opens that press conference with just Joel Embiid as the MVP there's no question about that and maybe that's what you do when you're a coach on the hot seat maybe it lends itself more to pandering to your you know, your best, your best players. Uh, but I just don't think that those guys were really pushed hard enough to get out of their comfort zone. I think the same thing with, uh, with James, uh, they both, and that's on them too. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think like as a great championship coach, you have to continue to push. And I don't think that he did that necessarily. I look back at, you know, saying that, Tyrese Maxey agreed to come off the bench that he texted him. I wrote a story about Tyrese Maxey and I didn't put either of these things in the story, but all I'll say now is that I asked Tyrese's dad how that went, like how that conversation really went. And in a free flowing, very open conversation where we talked about pretty much everything, he said, no comment. And I asked Tyrese about it and he was like, yeah, there was no, there was no, I mean, Ty, like, and they're not going to like, they're not going to throw the guy under the bus. Right. Tyrese says basically that there were no communication issues. It was a collaborative process and we we're all on the same page. And then I asked him, okay, so who suggested it first? And he smiles and he says, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> I think that was a situation where Doc was trying to, you know, he like, I don't think he was wrong to bring, bring Tyrese off the bench. I think tactically at that situation, it made a lot of sense, but at the same time, he is saying something that Tyrese also kind of contradicted in a podcast that he did too, just about it being Tyrese's idea. And it's just, it's just one other sort of example where I feel like he goes out of his way to give players cover when they might not necessarily even be asking for it. Like, I don't think Joel was necessarily the type of player who's asking for that. I think Joel is kind of the type of player who wants to hear criticism and wants to be pushed. So 
I don't know. All I'm going to say is that like one guy who for the last year has had an absolute field day criticizing his players in public is Nick Nurse, and he's a great tactician. <laughs> and if they, if if Joel and Nick can get over their their beef from last year's playoffs, I think that would be a pretty interesting fit. That would be. They don't seem to like each other, or at least Embiid has been poking fun at Nick Nurse and trolling him through the press for about a year now. Um the Tyrese Maxey anecdote you just shared is like absolutely fascinating. And to me, he is the key to this team's short-term future in whatever way you want to look at it. Like he he was to me the scariest player on that team for the Celtics. The Celtics had no response for Tyrese Maxey. He was incredible, I thought. And you know, that's a large, largely because Embiid was hurt, I think, and Harden mm-hmm. just malfunctioned in like four of those games. But Maxi's amazing. And I think you make a really great point where it's like the coach, like, I honestly forgot about the ben- the Maxi benching and that whole in season. I don't want to call it a drama because I thought it was handled very well, like publicly by everyone involved. But you don't see someone as talented who's that age get benched like that, who fundamentally makes sense. And the numbers backed all this up, like makes a lot of sense playing off Harden and Embiid. So like he had a right to be upset. I thought he brought it on defense too in the playoffs. Like he wasn't a huge liability, even though they attacked him over and over again. That was like Boston's offensive strategy in crunch time. Um, do you think it'll be nurse? Like if, who are we predicting? There's here? so many good coaches. I think that's the thing. I think like the other thing I'll say on Maxi too, is that the Celtics are a team that he has historically struggled against their size or length their physicality. Um, just their understanding of matchups. They take him to his left hand a lot. They make him take shots that are difficult for him. And he kind of aver- overcame all of that, which is something that I look for when I, think about like a player's future development um mm-hmm. so yeah i think like a future with joel and maxi then we'll see what kind of choice harden makes um is not necessarily a bad one i just think that like this team probably needs to play more towards a style of serving a guy like that though like they were just way too slow and i think maybe that that's that's something you got to consider in a coaching decision as well like um if you bring in someone like monty williams for example then I think he's definitely going to hold his stars accountable. But I think that will also come with tactically serving their interests, Mm -hmm. which if maybe you, if you maybe really commit to that, as opposed to this sort of like multiple sort of different offenses, the Sixers were trying to run it different times. Maybe that works, but I kind of, I look at the Eastern conference and I think, yes, the coaching change makes sense. But I also just think that the Sixers have, a lot of tactical questions to answer beyond that too. Um, and there, I don't know, there's Bud. I think Bud is really good at, I think the way that he kind of got Milwaukee's offense hypercharged, maybe he could do a similar thing for, for the Sixers. Um, people are talking about JJ Redick. We obviously have no idea what JJ Redick will be like as an NBA coach. Uh, that's just one of those sort of wild card. Like you just don't know until you know situations. Great podcaster, obviously. Um, I would like to think that that translates well to pretty much 
any, any field, right? Like if you can, if you can just go and talk about basketball for an hour, I think like, you know, I don't know, you can do anything. In my <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, I think first of all, the fast, slow push and pull that you just mentioned had me like flashbacks to Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid on the same team. It was like, mm-hmm. how, what, what's the style? Who's going to win out here? But yeah, Maxi is the fastest or one of the fastest players in the entire league. And the coach who I tweeted this, like when the, when Woj first broke the news, but like Mike D'Antoni would be a hilarious uh, head coach for this team. And obviously he has a history with everyone. Most of the, players oh, yeah. and people yeah. involved with Maury mm-hmm. and just all that going back to Houston and Harden, yeah. et cetera, PJ Tucker. Um, they're all familiar with him. They all love him, but Matt, he would do like, I don't know how he would be able to fit with Embiid or if he could get Embiid to play at a faster tempo or, or what, I don't even know if that's beneficial for your basketball team to have Embiid go up and down, but Maxi would be amazing with Mike D'Antoni as a head coach. Oh like God. that would be so much fun to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. So that, I think that's what I'm rooting for now that we've broached several of the candidates. Yeah. The fat, the fast, slow push and pull works really good with Embiid. If the guy can shoot, like we saw it with JJ Redick, good I think point. we didn't see it enough with Tobias Harris. <laughs> Great you, you point. Know? Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine like, yeah. What if, what if JJ Redick came back as a player coach and he just like, came off the bench, ran a few dribble handoffs with Embiid, shot some threes, and then just went back to coaching. Bill Russell did it. Why can't J.J. Redick do it? You know Exactly. I mean, that's that's kind of what I've always said about J.J. Redick. J.J. Redick as a head coach would be fascinating. I wonder how difficult that would be just interrelationship-wise with you know becoming a leader of people who used to be your teammate. Um, mm-hmm. That would be fascinating. But yeah. no, that that's... Certainly, and I wonder what style of play he would adopt. And obviously, the Joe Missoula wanted to bring him onto his staff before the season started. So, I mean, JJ Reddick's super smart. If anyone listens to his podcast, they know that. I'm rooting for Mike D'Antoni to get his job, though. Now yeah. that I'm just thinking yeah, about it, sounds, it more and more. Sounds like the most fun option. And it be it makes like the defense optional thing. Like maybe Harden comes back. I don't know. I don't think they win a title with D'Antoni, but I think I'd have a lot of fun watching them. Definitely not, but it would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, Any other thoughts on the Doc firing? No, I think Doc is, uh, I mean, won a championship in 2008, went to the finals in 2010, has come close with some really talented teams, has obviously blown several 3-2, 3-1 playoff series leads that, I think that that has become, I know that has become the predominant narrative when his name is mentioned as like the guy who chokes away um, or squanders away advantages. I just think mm-hmm. he's a really good coach. And uh, I, I think that a couple of the teams that recently fired their head coaches will take a strong look at him i.e. like the Milwaukee Bucks, for example. I would not be shocked at all if he got that job. Um, Still really respected, still really smart, and I think has become underrated tactically, honestly. Yeah, strangely, strangely. Um, Yeah, we'll see where Doc goes. That'll be another interesting wrinkle. Um, Well, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Chris and Ben, for producing, and we will talk to you guys next week.
This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. 